Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Don Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And I know we've been gone for quite a while. The holidays are here, but no fear, we're back together. We're going to get you guys all caught up on our adventures, what happened over the holiday weekend and all that great stuff. And we're going to talk a little bit about Wake Island. But but first, before we do, we have a special guest. We're going to go ahead and draw the name for the November giveaway for the Hit the Beach print for our Patreon members. Now, Jeff's going to have a very special guest draw that name, but we're not going to reveal the name until later. But we're going to draw that name right now at the top of the show. Jeff, how you doing, sir? Good, good. This is exciting. Uh, I've got 15 uh, names in my hand right here, and I'm going to put them in my... You know, everybody pulls names out of a steel pot. Sure. Right? We're, we're different here. It's what's the scuttlebutt. We, we do things a little different. So I'm surprised figured, you didn't shove them in your coffee mug as much as you love that thing, but, you know, I get it. <laughs> Want to be authentic. That would have been a good plan B. But since we are talking about, uh, at least for tonight, Next episode, we're going to talk about the Battle of Wake Island, the significance of it. So I thought a 1941-dated M105 shell would be sufficient. So let me mix them up, and then our special guest will pull our one lucky name. Special guest none other than my beautiful wife, Tammy. That's her beautiful hand. And her nice sweater and her long arm. Now, that shell is so deep that it goes past her elbow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. All right. Don't say anything. Don't say it. Okay. It's a secret. Don't say it. We don't want Lucky Luce just tuning in and then turning away. So yeah, we are yeah. going to reveal the name here shortly. But first and foremost, fellas, let's get caught up. Happy Thanksgiving-ish. It was a while ago, but we haven't <laughs> talked since before Thanksgiving. So uh, get that out of the way. Yeah, As you guys yeah, are apt to do, you hit the road. You said, Texas is nice, but we're out of here. So give us, <laughs> yeah. give us another rundown on the adventures of the Copsetta family over Thanksgiving. Yeah, well, you know, it, it started, I guess, maybe five years or so ago. And you remember um, the marketing director at the time of National Museum Pacific Wars. His name is Brandon Vineyard. Um, he's also been a guest on What's the Scuttlebutt before. His father was... Um, Really just an incredible reenactor, collector. He had one of the most complete uh, World War II field kitchens in the country. Also a guest on the show. Also a guest on the show. And we did a, a memorial to him as well after he sadly passed away. And um, But so Brandon got married down in New Orleans to his beautiful wife. And they go there uh, almost every year for their anniversary. And one year he invited me and Tammy and another couple, another reenactor buddy of ours. Uh, hey, come down to NOLA for Thanksgiving weekend. And, um, you know, come hang out with us on, on Bourbon Street and, and do the World War II Museum and everything. So um, we did that again, like I said, about five years ago. And then um, my son and his best friend, again, also young reenactors, were like, Mr. Jeff, man, I really want you to take, you know, me and, and Logan to the World War II Museum in New Orleans. And I thought, well, okay, you know, let's let's book it. Talk to the wife. Say, babe, I'm going to take a few days and take these two boys down to the down the World War II Museum, you know, we'll do it Thanksgiving week. And, I mean, to just have two days to ju- do nothing but go through that museum. And let me tell you, folks, if you haven't gone and you're planning on going, do not plan one day to go in that museum. You need the two days. You know, that's you always really an indicator do. of a quality museum. 
If you can get through in an hour, eh, that's nice. Get through in a day, that's cool. Get it through and through it in two days, that is a huge footprint. It really is. And, and you know, I, I'll be honest, I don't know, I wouldn't say it speaks to the quality of it. I've seen some beautiful <laughs> museums that are really one Absolutely. room, but you're right. It's it's the footprint. And, um, you know, sometimes, again, that can play against uh, museum goers like, oh, my God. Well, I was going to say, let's. Let's talk yeah. about that. Is that overwhelming to to the novice? I mean, from the you know, we're we're a different breed. We all admit that we we've been bitten by the bug. So of course, you know, to us that's like a huge baseball fan going to like the baseball hall of fame and just seeing everything. But for the casual observer, is that almost too much? It's kind of like we go to a restaurant and they got like the four flip out page menu. <laughs> it's like, can we condense this a little bit? It's okay. So from that aspect, it is much too much. I mean, it is every, it's World War II. It's everything World War II. And you can't do that in one room. You can't even do that in one building. And so, yeah, I think to casual museum goers, when you get a map that's six ginormous buildings, even walking in to get tickets, there's a C-47 and a Spitfire hanging from the rafters above you. Uh, there's a Higgins boat in the corner. There's a an 88 flat gun. There's a Union Pacific train car. And you're not even in the museum yet. Yeah. This <laughs> is where you buy the You're tickets. in the veranda. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Welcome to the lobby. So um, it, it is a lot. Here's a thought. I just had this thought. And we've discussed large museums in the past. As someone who's worked at multiple museums, when it comes to a museum of that scale, do you think it would be feasible, especially if it's multiple buildings where they might be able to say, okay, hey, we're going to offer different packages. If you want to come to the Pacific War package, that's in building A and B. If you want to do the North African package, head over to building C. And so obviously for reduced price, because you're not spending so much time there, it would be kind of cool if they offer packages directed to a certain aspect, because as you said, opening the show, you know, once again, going back to the casual observer, people think World War II, uh, Normandy, France, what have you, but it's a heck of a lot more than that. And it'd be kind of cool if a museum of that scale kind of offered different packages based on what your interest is per that visit. So you can better utilize your time and focus on Italy, North Africa, what have you. That'd be kind of a cool thing, but I don't know if it'd be feasible financially or even logistically in a museum atmosphere. I think it's an incredible idea because there are buildings. There's one building that's just the theaters of war upstairs is, and I may get this backwards. I believe upstairs is PTO and downstairs is, is ETO. Um, but I think, you know, you said it, I think it's logistically, I don't know how, cause all the buildings are connected several ways. You can go in, uh, there's like a, there's like a rotunda kind of area, outdoor quad type area, courtyard, whatever you want to call it, where you can get into any of those buildings. And then there's also on the second floor, there are like glass walkways that go over the road in some cases that connect the buildings on the second floor. So I don't, I don't know how you would keep people like, oh, yeah, I want the PTO package, and then they're everywhere. Like, you couldn't you just do what You just do what the amusement parks do. You take that fast pass line, and you send them through the fire exit. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> much what they all did, right? You go to Universal, get the fast pass. You're just going through the fire exit out the back, up the back of the line and bypassing everybody. You can kind of <laughs> do that. Yeah. But, but it, is, it is quite a bit, and um, 
there's a there's a great introduction. I mean, you know that the orientation um, of museums really can kind of make or break it too. And I, I think, you know, of course, I'm a little biased, but National Museum Pacific War in Fredericksburg has a great um, it, their their first exhibit's called Seeds of Conflict. Right. So you you talk about the significance of William Perry dropping Commodore Perry dropping anchor in Tokyo Bay right in the mid 19th century. Um, the uh, Zino Japanese War, the Russo Japanese War in 1905 and, and Battle of Tsushima and things that we don't really think about when we're you know, when we study World War Two. Um, but they really take you from about 1850s to, you know, 1945 and beyond to really fully explain the really the, the true magnitude of the Pacific theater of World War II. Well, when um, I went out there and, to visit you at the National Museum of the Pacific War, that was the first large-scale museum I had been to since like I was like middle school, like where you take the field trip to whatever in Columbus and all that. And obviously technology had come a long way. I'm sure, I've been around to a lot of the little mom-and-pop mom places with just the displays, but that was my first time going in a modern-day fully immersive, audibly and visibly multimedia-style museum, unlike the one you just visited where we've talked before. It's just a lot of a lot of displays, not so many artifacts. The Pacific War is the other way around. It has a lot of artifacts, but they also incorporate the sound. And as you're saying, when you first go in there and the lights come down, the video and the audio and everything, it's just completely immersive, and it's – I just want to bring it up for people who may have not been to a museum in 20, 30 years. Um, they've come a long way, <laughs> and it's sight sounds. I've been, I've, you know, sometimes they have fog machines, um, you know, depicting whatever. And so, if you haven't been to a larger scale multimedia style museum that includes the artifacts, I strongly suggest you grab your kids or just your friends and head out to one because they have come a long way over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And and National Museum of World War II is probably the absolute that this is the pinnacle, right? Um so their orientation is literally Tom Hanks coming on screen for about 7 minutes. And, and who better to talk about the significance of the most, you know, devastating war in human history. It, and it's very powerful. There'll, there'll just be a number and, and a country that comes up, right? And the numbers increasingly get larger and larger and larger. And it's the amount of people killed from that country during the war. And it it just, when you see over 400,000 Americans, my goodness, you know, it's, it's almost a half a million people. And then you see, you know, millions of Germans and millions of Chinese and millions Russians. of Russians. Of course, Russians top the list. And then so it adds up to somewhere around 60 million humans died because of World War II. I wonder what the percentage of the Earth's population that was at that time. Uh, well, I think in 1950, the Earth's population was right about 3 billion, you know, of course, give or take. So that's an interesting thought. Uh, Ten years prior, less, less than that. Um, that's a pretty good chunk, man. It's a pretty good chunk. Um, so that kind of sets the stage. Thanks to my fast typing fingers. 3.76% of the Earth's population died during World War II. Yeah, that's substantial. That's substantial. Um, so you, you fully, you know, you start to fully grasp, okay, this is a big deal. This isn't just, you know, cool airplanes and, and stuff that we love and are interested in. This was, 
this was devastating. And so, like I said, Hanks really just does a wonderful job kind of introducing the significance of it. And then you walk into a 4D movie theater experience uh, for about 45 minutes. You're in a theater and the screen comes alive. The audio, it, it takes you all around the globe. I mean, it's like you're traveling through space and you're going from continent across the oceans to another continent. And then it zooms in and you're on ground zero and you're in the jungles of Guadalcanal and, and rifle rounds are snapping through the jungle. Or you may be in North Africa and a tiger tank comes over a wadi and your chair's vibrating, you know. And then later on, you're cast down and it's snowing. And it's just incredible the way they end it with the drop of the atomic bomb. I mean, it, it, it blows everybody away. And it it's really, it, it kind of reminded me of when I saw Saving Private Ryan in movie theaters and back in 98 because everybody walked out of there quiet. And when, this is just an orientation exhibit to a museum. In 45 minutes, they did such an amazing job. You walk out of there, you're you're a little bit more respectful, more quiet. You know what I mean? It just kind of really set the tone for it. It's just so well done. I was going to say, you know, when you have a group of people getting ready to go into a footprint of subject matter of that, of that and we've always talked before about, you know, taking the romanticism and taking the the Hollywood out of the history, that's a good way to set the pace. Like, Hey, we're going to, you know, you guys are staying in line. Are you coming from, you know, having a good time in the morning or come from food? We're going to bring in here. We're going to set some facts. We're going to bring your pulse down a little bit and then release you in here in a proper mood and just kind of get you focused on the, on the information we're about to show you. Yeah, absolutely. So, and then after that, it's two days of just an absolute, you know, sensory overload of artifacts and very large artifacts right in in one room there's a b-17 a b-25 an avenger a corsair a p-51 <laughs> hanging from a very large you know building all real aircraft hanging from the rafters and of course below it is a sherman tank and a half track and a deuce and a half and it's just it's so much this is one building it's so much. the cool thing about setting it up that way is you put a sherman tank in a room by itself Sherman tank looks big. You walk up to the Sherman tank, you look at it like that's big. Then you look up and go, not that big. <laughs> I mean, it really puts everything into perspective when you stack them. You know, it's kind of like showing the coin for scale. Well, here's your tank. Well, there's the, now I actually fit three yeah. of those in one of those. Yeah. And the fact that, yeah, you, know, you know, it just, it definitely gives you a whole other, um, just a, another viewpoint too. I mean, like, you know, you can go and see, the Memphis Bell on display, you know, in Ohio, right? Or you can see B-17s. Even at an air show, you, you can see them. You can walk through them. They may fly later that day or something. But honestly, it was very powerful, just like you were doing, just looking up at the bottom of a B-17. It's just a perspective that kind of gives you a little bit more humility of how dangerous and just – it just had such a foreboding presence, uh, you know, hanging above you, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we just think they're glorious and they're beautiful and they're rugged. But then when you look up, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I would not want to be under one of these things, you know? Just look like they just want to rain death and destruction on you. So it's, you know, yes, it's a great way to display them because it gives you open floor space for Shermans and things. 
but just from another perspective of just looking up at the, like even a Corsair coming down, it was kind of angled in, even the landing gear was down, but it just kind of reminded me of the, the Corsairs hitting the ridges in Peleliu where they didn't even have time to bring their landing gear up and they took off. They were dropping ordnance that quick. The enemy was that close to the airfield. So, you know, they were, they were literally, you know, uh, engaging the enemy before they could get their landing gear up. And it just, you know, it just has a different, it just gives you a different feel for how dangerous uh, these aircraft were to the enemy, you know. It would be kind of cool. I'm sure that maybe there's something on YouTube. It would be interesting to see when they were putting that museum together, the process of mounting those things up on the ceiling. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, do they build a scaffolding and just raise it, mount it, and then take the scaffolding down? Is it listed with a giant cherry picker? They put the wings on last? I mean, <laughs> I mean that's yeah. A, couple of ratchet straps and some crowbars. I mean, <laughs> you just flick it and say that ain't going anywhere and keep on going. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's impressive. I mean, everything about it is impressive. So yeah, highly, highly, highly recommend. I mean, it, that's the second time I've been there and I know I missed a couple thousand things. How did know, the little but... ones take it when they walk into a room like that and just. Well, it was just me and oh, my okay. oldest son. Oh, that's his... right. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, it was just kind of a guy's trip, just the three of us. But I will tell you, we had kind of a really neat experience. I mean, to put in perspective, I think there's three or four different places to eat, like within the museum. Wow. If I remember, maybe five different gift shops. So there's one, whatever the, the main restaurant is, and there's like a full bar inside and beautiful pictures on the wall of USO shows. And there's videos over the bar of like Bob Hope and all this great stuff. And so we ate there two both days, two days in a row. And that the first day we were there, we're I guess we were getting an early supper. And um, you know, three of us sitting at the table, and this guy walks by, and then he kind of backs up and he looks down at us. He's like, "Are you Jeff Copsetta?" <laughs> yeah. And he looked over. He goes, "And you're Logan Copsetta?" To my son, we're like, "Yeah." He goes, "It's Vince Dibbles." <laughs> like, holy smokes! So. Uh, most people may not know him by name, but if you follow Bayonets of Bonsai or Pacific War Relics on Instagram, uh, that's him. And and uh, we've been talking for years through him, never have uh, met each other. Um, it was just a crazy, like, awesome. what are you doing here? <laughs> you know? uh, what are you doing here? It's I, you one know, thing so... for you to get recognized, but I bet the kid was excited. Like, oh, wow. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Complete. Yeah. It was super. It what was you super thought cool. was a stranger identified you. Then you realize, oh, I know you. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was fun. I got to meet his mom and, you know, I hand him a business card. I said, here you go. You, you know, we, we actually did meet in person, you know, not just this elusive social media friendship kind of thing. Cause it was, I, I told him, I said, man, it was impressive. He was the first phone call I got a year ago at the Dallas Air Show when that B 17 went down. And he lives in Hawaii. Mm I was not back to the hotel yet, and he was on the horn with me. He's like, dude, you all right? I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm okay. Oh, I saw you were at the air show. Just you know, saw what happened. It blew me away. Him, he was the very first phone call from Hawaii. The second one was Sarah, the history chick in Oregon. Within an hour, hour and a half, which is amazing how how quickly I'll never forget that is it, it news traveled that quick, but. Uh, Interesting yeah, cool segue, scene. since you brought it up. I have it on my screen. I was going to wait until a little later, but since you brought it up, I wanted to get your opinion on this, being obviously um, someone who loves aviation as well as you do, someone who was at the Dallas Air Show, and someone who's has 
and is working in has worked in similar environments. In the wake of the 2019 B-17 Flying uh, Fortress accident, the Foundation decided to ground its aircraft and put them on permanent display. What Foundation? The Collings Foundation ends Wings of Freedom World War II aircraft tours. Collings Foundation, whose Wings of Freedom tours brought World War II aircraft airshows across the United States, offering rides aboard the B-17G, the B-25, the B-24, and the P-51D, has decided to permanently ground its aircraft and put them on display at the Foundation's American Heritage Museum. The decision comes in the wake of the 2019 B-17 Flying Fortress accident, which caused the death of five passengers, the pilot and the co-pilot. According to Flying Magazine, the decision was disclosed through the Collins Foundation American Heritage Museum newsletter, which stated the Foundation is moving forward on the long-term plans to bring the aircraft from nation wide flying exhibitation to permanent displays in Hudson, Massachusetts. The museum has collected, I'm sorry, the museum has a collection of military vehicles spanning from the U.S. Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, and Coast Guard and other nations with 50 aircrafts and over 90 vehicles in addition to large aircrafts. Is that a huge blow for World War II representation at national air shows or are there plenty more suppliers let's just say or you know collectors who are still available to bring those out um yeah no i I don't think that's going to affect a whole lot the collins foundation that's that's a whole separate deal than uh and that's not even the same b17 crash that we're talking about right that's this one was four or five years ago uh up in massachusetts uh which was a shame to lose that bird that was one of the first b17s i was in was the one that went down in 2019. Um, the the commemorative Air Force, which you know I I support as much as I possibly can, doing different things for them between video and air shows, and of course of being a member. Um, the commemorative Air Force, and it's an international organization now, right? They're not just the U.S. They have a, about 175 aircraft that they keep flying, and um, you know that that's kind of your meat and potatoes for most of the air shows around the u.s and i i don't see that organization making a call like that collins foundation i get it right they've they've got a handful and it's a big deal it's very expensive and you know great 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 on them i i don't agree or disagree i don't think to answer your question though more directly i don't think it's going to play as big an impact um nationally or on the air show circuit as as we might initially think. Well, the reason I bring up this story is even though they make a reference to the accident in 2019, that story broke in December um, yeah, this year. So just uh, actually three days ago. So I wonder if the Dallas, because I know after the Dallas show, there was other people suggesting that maybe we ground warbirds. And so I wonder if that helped them come to their decision. I'm sure it played a, a part, and there's been several other World War II aircraft have gone down since, you know that that aren't as as widely publicized. Sure. It, it it happens, and um, you know I, I don't know I don't want to be redundant. I don't remember what we talked about last time, but yeah. I, I do feel that keeping these aircraft airworthy is the best way to also keep them preserved because you want to park it in a hangar somewhere. Oh, it's leaking a little oil here. That quit working. Doesn't matter. Yep. But if people are going to be flying it, you're going to have paid customers flying in it. 
everything has to be functioning. It yeah, because you can go functions. down to your local hot rod museum and grab any car off the floor, and chances are the block has been drained, and hopefully they got a full-time staff to go turn over the pistons every once in a while to keep that stuff from seizing up. But chances are um, you might find that uh, they don't quite fire right up as you think they might because they're – and a lot of times uh, historical machines at museums, they may just – unless that hood's pop, they just may look pretty from the outside. You may not even sure. have a complete working engine inside. Yeah, so. and you know that's fine too. I think there should be a combination of both. Yeah, I, I think there needs to be the the you know the the ground floor type exhibits for folks to look at. They don't have to be airworthy. Doesn't have to have a cockpit or anything in it. You don't need to see inside kind of thing. But um, yeah, it's it's the aircraft flying overhead. It's the sound of it. It's people getting to fly in it. That's where you're going to. You know that's that's where you're gonna really make your money, and I don't mean that literally, but that's that's where you're gonna get younger generations to buy in. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a sensory generation, right? They gotta have all kinds of stuff popping in and and all kinds of stuff because they're you know we gotta be doing this every few seconds. So an airplane sitting on the ground is not gonna catch anybody's attention if we want to keep this stuff alive generations from now, which we absolutely do. If you've ever seen or heard a P-51 flying overhead at like 500 feet or less, <laughs> you're going to be like, uh, I mean, it's just, you can go, you, you're literally transported in time immediately. Like that's what those guys heard in the Ninth Air Force, you know, in Italy and in the Eighth Air Force and in England and the French countryside. It's the same exact sound. That's it. it it's, that's it. That's what it sounded like. Those were the so, Merlin engines, were they not? Uh yeah yeah, um well early on they weren't but then they moved the, right when they originally Packard, were, yeah they moved to the Merlins later because I guess the, yeah the original ones they weren't as reliable as or they didn't have the horsepower as they were hoping right right so yeah I mean like I said good 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 on them um but I'm sure that was a very tough decision clearly it took four four years yeah. to, to to confirm and. I don't I don't see the CAF doing that. Um now, you know, it brings up the question, well, if we've only got one. Well, that's what what I was, do I was we saying do with one offs, but even still, you know, it's like I understand you want to save your one off, but what brings people in an air show other than getting the opportunity to see the one off still flying? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that's a big factor in our air show here. I mean, it's nice to have some of the acrobatic aircraft and the things you see, you know, fairly more common, the SNJ T6 type, you know, trainer aircraft. This year for our March air show, uh, we're pushing to get a flyover from Fifi, the B-29, to do a um, simulated bombing run. Um, the Hind uh, helicopter, we've had that uh, there before. Of course, the A-10s. So, you know, stuff you don't typically see every day. Yeah, and, and that's that's what we want, you know. That's what we want for the children that come to the air shows, um, because I again I think that's when when it, when it, when I talk to the crowd at the air show, I always thank the parents. Is if you brought a kid, you know, give yourself a round of applause because chances are your kid is going to bring their kid to an air show, and that's that's how we keep it going. When I was driving up to Paris. Uh, three weeks, four weeks ago when I was doing the train event, I guess maybe Port Charlotte was preparing to have an air show the following day. 
because as I'm driving up the interstate, I see three of the six Thunderbirds just kind of flying around in formation, kind of doing like prep work and testing their systems out. It was it's it's one thing when you see a flyover at an airship, but when you're driving up the interstate, and you see them zipping over. It's like, oh, that's cool. I wasn't expecting that. Oh, I need to focus on where I'm driving. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I'm on a causeway. I don't need to end up in the drink. But yeah, it was cool just to see. <laughs> I was like, oh, that, there goes the Thunderbirds. Growing up in Ohio in Rickenbacker Air Force Base, I had the luxury of being walking distance of the Rickenbacker Air Show every year. Plus, my brother was in Civil Air Patrol, so we had passes to get on the base. But I, it was cool. It was like every other year they'd rotate. One year it was the Thunderbirds, next year it was the Blue Angels. And so I got to see all right. them, you know, walking on a Hercules and all that stuff. But yeah, I grew up watching those guys. I always think about my bedroom. Talk about bad placement. I had everybody, you know, when you're growing up, you got the the dresser with the mirror on it well they still had the spotlight on the water tower so it would circle around come through my window hit my mirror and shine <laughs> my face every single night it's like it's like the episode of uh seinfeld when uh the kennedy rogers roasted chicken opened up from uh kramer's place and the light was driving nuts i had to deal with that every night and the other thing my brother he really got into he wanted to get into high-end rc car building now these days you can go on amazon and order you know, a kit, but back in the day, you had to go to hobby stores and drop a couple hundred bucks, which was an inordinate amount of money. You'd have to go home and build them and all that. Well, him and my dad built one. He took it out. The radio tower, which it, it would, it, the thing would be driving on the street and all of a sudden hang a hard left and smack into the curb and break the front wheel off. Yeah, he, he couldn't control the thing because all the interference on the, the Air Force Base. Wow. It, of course, this is in the back in 83, so, but yeah. It was crazy. I've been staring over your shoulder, and I guess we've been waiting, making the audience wait long enough. And for those who don't know what we're talking about, we're doing two giveaways. We're going to do the other one probably maybe in February. We want to give people time to sign up. But we're doing the first giveaway tonight. And Jeff has it on behind him, but I have the one we're actually giving away here in front of me. And so as Jeff prepares to read the name, um, let me get this out of the tube. Now, this one is autographed by uh, five Marines. Our, our, uh, Virgin is one of them. And this is Get Off the Beach. This is the one where actually this person is going to win tonight. And you can see these signatures on the bottom. It is kind of permacurled. You're going to want to put it in a frame because, once again, these came out what? 10 years ago? 11 years ago? Oh, yeah. And they, 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 they this actually print has actually been sitting at the estate of, uh, you know, the sledges and in henry's office so it's it's been curled up for 10 years so you'll definitely want to take it somewhere and have it, a nice frame put on it and um i gotta get mine framed jeff who is the lucky winner of our drawing number one of the that would the be beach? I, I almost thought about i kind of wanted to like name a bunch of other people and say you didn't win <laughs> but i'm not gonna do that uh joe schwartz joe schwartz is it schwartz or schwartz i'm not sure S-C-H-W-A-R-Z is what it came through the email. But, uh, Joe, you know who you are. Hopefully you're listening or watching. Uh, Don will be sending you one soon. And, Joe, I will be reaching out to you through Patreon to get a hold of you. Make sure we have your up-to-date address. I'd hate to send us somewhere you no longer live. And if you guys are watching this, you're like, well, I want to get signed up for the second one. All you have to do is go to WTSPWorldWar2.com and click on the uh, Back to the Attack link. Um or the orange Patreon link, sign up for Patreon. We have three tiers. One's $1.50 a month, the other one's $3.50 a month, and the third one is $7.50 a month. Doesn't matter which one you sign up for. Everybody's the same. 
So don't matter if you sign up for the dollar plan or the $7 plan. As long as you're an active subscriber, when we do the next giveaway, um, you're eligible. And we, we've done other giveaways, we, and I still have one or two of these left. We have autograph M blocks from me, Jeff, and Henry, and all that. So we want to thank all the patrons who signed up, who are um, actively subscribing. Um, if you didn't win, don't worry. We're giving away the next one in about two months, and we're going to probably... We're going to continue to do the giveaways. We want to thank you guys for helping us keep the lights on around here. Um, I got to get with Jeff. We need to be a little more diligent with doing some Patreon exclusive video content. We're going to get on that the new year. We're going to focus and uh, bring you guys some new stuff here as 2024 rolls around because you know we have been up and running since 2018. Um, I know there's a hundred thousand million podcasts out there and new ones every day, but we've been around a while, and we want to thank each and every one of you because of you. We've been around a while. And so head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Patreon link, and sign up, and it goes a long way. And if you haven't done so, please head over to YouTube.com, look for Digital 410, um, and so like, subscribe. You can join us every week live. And I don't have my phone. I'm usually chatting with people in here, so I need to see if anybody's hanging out here. But uh, yeah, want to thank you guys so much, and congratulations to our winner. And we're going to talk a little bit about Wake Island, and then we'll finish up next week. And um, we're going to kind of do this out of order. I, I got into this topic because, as we often read on here, what you're reading, I just so happened to be reading a book that Jeff strongly suggested. This is another one of those books that Jeff was talking about. I went on Amazon during the show, bought it, came to mail, and put it on my bookshelf, forgot all about it. And then when I finished my last book, I looked over there and said, oh, yeah, I got to read this, and I'm happy I did. Before we get into... A lot of the ins and outs, the numbers of the battle on Wake Island. Um, one of the exciting things on this book that I really like, which I think would would make for a great Band of Brothers style miniseries, is the construction worker aspect of Wake Island, in particular this book. I mean, if you go on YouTube and you watch the videos and this and that, they'll mention that there was, you know, civilians there. And, you know... Some of them studied and fought and helped. There, there was 1,145 civilian construction workers there. And this book opens up. You're getting the first. You're getting names, where they're from, how they got there. The fact that a lot of these cats were 18, 19, depression was still on, and these were guys who weren't so much interested in the military, but they were still looking for a source of income and a source of an adventure. And they found out, hey, I can go get a job working nine months on this remote island in the Pacific, make a damn good wage for the time, and since I'm stuck on an island in the Pacific, I'm not exactly spending my money on the weekends. And so a lot of these guys looked at this plan as a way to save up money quickly, come home, get married, buy a house, start a business, this was kind of a quick savings, and after, I think, the six or nine months, provided there wasn't any war, um, you could, if it was your gig, you could sign up for another tour and help fortify this island, or you could say, hey, this was fun, but I'm heading back home and take the next steamer out of there after your time is up. And they get into those civilians in the beginning of this book, and it, it's really cool to read and hear their firsthand account of, what took them there, you know, why they signed up. 
And the fact that you had 1,145 civilian contractors on the island ranging from the ages of 18 to 75 and only, what, including everybody, you had 449 Marines, 69 sailors, six radio men detached from the U.S. Army, and 1,100 and some odd civilians. The civilians outnumbered the military personnel. And interestingly enough, you think, well, okay, we know Wake Island gets attacked. You got 1,145 civilians. That's a pretty good army. Don't work like that. <laughs> and as they pointed out in this book, the reason don't work like that, the Marines were sent out there to fortify this island. You had a couple of radio men, you had some, I think, 70 corpsmen, and a few sailors. And they knew that there was a possibility this island was going to get attacked, but as they're saying in the book, when you're already behind schedule and you're working 12-hour shifts, two shifts, rotating between your service personnel to fortify this, put in trenches, gun placements, shelters, runways, all that stuff, to train non trained civilians and art of warfare not only does that take personnel but that takes high-ranking personnel who have the ability to train people but you need this high-ranking personnel to run your crews to make sure the stuff gets done that you need to get done to fortify the island but also as mentioned the liability these guys are not under contract to the united states military therefore if they get involved in an act of warfare they're considered guerrillas and under Geneva Convention, they could be executed once taken prisoner. So you had that as well. And so even though you had technically access to 1,100 men ranging in ages, and some of them did have experience from World War I, you had to kind of select how many you were going to train, because they did end up training, I think, like 400 of them. But, you know, there was a liability, and you had to weigh your options at that point. Yeah, and it's it's a human story, and that's what really strikes me about Pacific Alamo because, you know, it's 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 so obscure in history now, and December nineteen forty one looked so drastically different from December nineteen forty from May June of nineteen forty two. It was such a different uh, atmosphere altogether in the American military, and so this really. Um, and this is why I highly recommended this book because, I, I mean, number one, I didn't know hardly anything about Wake to begin with, right? Who yeah. does? And it's a, it's a shame. I just know it was attacked and there just happened to be a film crew right. there. Yep. So, and it's, it. I mean, it's a shame because the first uh, Marine Corps officer during the Medal of Honor was at Wake. He was one of the four Wildcat pilots. There was, I think, 12 total in VMF-211, yep, and I, during the initial uh, aerial bombardment from the Japanese, eight of those Wildcats were destroyed on the ground, leaving four Wildcats that were airworthy to um, to combat the 16-day siege. And it uh, would have been all 12, way. but they decided to keep four aloft in shifts so that they could patrol the skies, and sadly, they were flying higher than the Japanese bombers did when they came in. Right. But before we get to that, back to the civilians versus the 
the active military, you got the Marines there. We know that even back then they were the least funded of all the branches. And then you got a corporate funded construction crew there on a government contract. So the Marines are on their own little islands across the bay. The construction crews over here, the Marines are eating K rations, C rations, whatever they can scrounge. And then when the construction crews get off, they're going to their mess tent that is food is provided by a large-scale corporation making money off a government contract. And so in the book, they're talking about how these Marines come home from their shifts. And as Marines tend to do, some find themselves over in a civilian mess hall because why not? You know, why eat why eat dog food when I can eat, you know, chicken and, and uh potatoes but yeah just that in and of itself could you imagine trying to stay motivated and have your morale up it's one thing when the whole island's eating the same gruel but it's literally you have almost a class system right you got they're sleeping in better quarters you know they're going out working they come home they have a movie theater they got a mess hall they got better uh tents some of them even have bunks and we're over here in the sand (laughs) eating cold food and warm coffee if we're lucky and just digging ditches and filling sandbags and putting gun placements in place and being told if we're caught sneaking over there, you know, we'll be punished. And so, you know, it's kind of like the old, old movies back in the days, like you had the boys summer camp on one side of the, the lake and the girls summer camp. And at some point, somebody's going to want to go visit and see what, what better things on the side of that pond. And so you have that going on as well. And uh, it just, it makes for an interesting kind of aspect of all the activity going on this island controlled by two different groups. Knowing yeah. that there's a possibility, but they were there for quite a while before Pearl Harbor was attacked. And so they kind of got complacent, especially the civilians. They're like, hey, this is great. We're getting paid. We're getting a tan. We're, you know, we're having a good shift. And uh, at night, we get to do our own thing. And we're, and other than gambling, we're not really spending our money. So when we get home, we're gonna have a, you know, nice nest egg on us, and we can go do our thing. Yeah. I don't know if you got to that part in the book yet, but is that I was trying to remember before the show started? Is that where the B-17s were ultimately heading? That came in on December 7th landing at Pearl to refuel. I don't know if that's where they're heading, but, um, as we get into part two, basically after the main primary invasion, when they radioed back to, um, Pearl that they were attacked, I think task Four task force 14 was being sent, but they were coming out of California. They had to stop in Hawaii and refuel and then head to wake. And then task force 11 was already out in the ocean. They were kind of sent, but Wake Island's closer to Japan and all the other 23 locations that they attacked roughly around the same time. Because not only did they attack Pearl Harbor and Wake, but after they did Wake, they did 20 other, three other locations. And so you have the group that came from Pearl, you have the group that came from the Philippines, and they're all heading over there. And once Wake reported that they were made contact, the Navy pulled our vessels out said you know we just lost a lot of ships at pearl harbor we can't risk losing two more flat tops and so they were left kind of high and dry and i think the navy was only two days out at that point and they were sent away yeah but before we get to that point 
December 4th, 1941, uh, the American garrison, as we said before, numbered in 449 Marines, 69 sailors, six-man radio detachment from the United States Army to act as communication. Um, the 389 Marines belonged to the Wake Island Detachment 1st uh, Defense Battalion. As we said, there was 100 and, I'm sorry, 1,145 civilian contractors. And also, there's a couple dozen Pan-American employees and 45 yeah. natives. Because, at got to remember, prior to the war, Pan Am, what, was maybe four years into this whole fly-around-the-world-go-on-vacation thing, or maybe six years into it, they just started building. That's why there was already a runway there. And as we discuss in other episodes, basically Pan Am pilots, once the war started, they automatically just got folded into the Army Air Corps and were given ranks because they were already flying these routes pre-war. And so there was a Pan Am building there, and there was 45 natives who worked for Pan Am. And as Jeff said earlier, we had 12 F4F3 Wildcats. There were two submarines um, posted there. And um, the Marines were armed with five, I'm sorry, six five-inch, 127-millimeter um, gun pieces originating, which is kind of cool. I never knew this, from the old battleship USS Texas from 1892. So the, the, the uh, five-inch gun placements they had were basically recommissioned off of an old battleship. They had uh, 12 50 cal anti-aircraft guns with only one single working um aircraft director among them that 1850 cal browning heavy machine guns 30 30 cal heavy medium and light water-cooled air and air-cooled machine guns obviously the marines are still equipped with the 1903 springfield um they had a couple of thompson submachine guns some 45 pistols and hand grenades and so the fact that they were able to beat off the first repel the first attack from the the japanese is tremendous and that's you, you hear Wake Island, you think, oh, they just got bombed and strafed. No, there was landing, and they fought off the first one because um, as the Japanese ships turned around after they... Because the Japanese, they strafed and they just peppered the island. They just bombed the island. And the Marines commander smartly realized, hey, let's uh, not give away our location yet. Let's wait until they come in closer. And just so happened, they kind of went down, flipped U-turn, and came back up the coast even closer. And the Marines just lit into them and just gave them one hell of a fight. Let's see here. Yeah. Go ahead. And if, if I remember, too, the didn't the Japanese actually, they, they invaded, and then didn't they pull back? Yes. And then reinvade, if I remember right. Yeah, on, on December 8th, 1941, just hours after receiving word the uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor, 36 Japanese Mitsubishi um, G3M medium bombers flew from bases in the Marshall Islands and attacked Wake Island, destroying, as you said earlier, eight of the 12 aircraft. Um, three Wildcats on the ground. The remaining four F4F Wildcats were in the air patrolling, but as I said earlier, because of poor visibility, they didn't see them. These Wildcats shot down two bombers on the following day. All the Marine garrison defensive emplacements were left intact by the first air raid, which primarily targeted the aircraft. Of the 55 Marine 
Aviation personnel, 23 were killed and 11 were wounded. And then early in the morning of... Now, keep in mind, these dates will sound weird because you're used to hearing December 7th, but because of where Wake Island was located in the hemisphere, they were a day before us. So you're, so you're going to hear December 8th. I'm like, wait a minute, I thought this was December 7th. That's why, because this is December 8th, Wake Island time. So early in the morning on December 8th, the Pan American Martin M-130 had left and was on its way to Guam with passengers when it received radio message at the, of the attack on Pearl Harbor and was turned to return to Wake Island. It returned only to be caught in the Japanese surprise bombing raid, which killed nine employees and destroyed many of the buildings. Two more air raids followed the following days. The main camp was targeted on December 9th, destroying the, the civilian hospital and the Pan Am Air Facility. The next day, enemy bombers focused on the outlying Wilkes Island. Following the raid on December 9th, four aircraft guns had been relocated in case the Japanese had photographed their positions. Wooden replicas were in, erected in their place, and luckily the Japanese fell for the ruse. The Japanese bombers attacked the decoyed positions. Um, a lucky strike on civilian dynamite supply set off a chain reaction and destroyed the munitions for the guns on Wilkes. So they had gun placements, but now their ammunition had blown up. Which we also know from the first air raid that their um, aviation fuel dumps got hit. And so even for the four wildcat, uh, four planes that were left, very little fuel. On the early mornings of December 11th, the Japanese fleet moved within range, as I was saying earlier, to begin shelling the island around 6 a.m., um, prior to the landing assault, Cunningham had been working with Pearl to try to get the civilians away, but, but on the course, I'm sorry, but of course Pearl Harbor had lost so many ships in the Pearl Harbor attack that there was fewer resources available to, uh, for a relief mission. Because of the concern of the radio jamming, Wake was able to send up the serviceable 4F4F Wildcats on patrol before the invasion of the fleet arrived. Uh, the U.S. Marines fired at the invasion fleet with their six, I'm sorry, yeah, their six five-inch guns, and Major Devereaux ordered the gunners to hold off their fire until the enemies were within range of the coastal defense. Battery L on um, Pilay uh, Inlet sank the Hyatt at a distance of uh, 4,000 yards with at least two direct hits on its magazine, causing her to explode and sink within two minutes in a full view of the defenders offshore. Could you imagine that? You're the Japanese military. You successfully attacked Pearl Harbor. Didn't lose a naval vessel. You attacked Guam, Philippines, 22 other locations. Haven't lost a vessel. You attack Wake Island, and within two minutes, <laughs> you lost a vessel. Two minutes, and those Marines downed one of your destroyers. Uh, two destroyers were thus lost with nearly all hands. There was only um, sorry, only one survivor, so I think the Japanese lost, yes, they uh, lost 407 casualties during their first attempt. The Japanese forces withdrew without landing, suffering their first setback of the war against the Americans. And when those two destroyers were hit, I'm sorry, um, those destroyers were hit, but they were kind of being used as landing crafts, like oversized landing crafts. So they got incredibly close, and they were actually, one of them was offboarding men as it got hit. And so they were successful in landing troops on the ground, and those troops kind of veered out to the left and to the right to attack one group of Marines down at the end of the island and the other group right around the air, the air base. And, and then the, the group going to the left to attack split off again and went 
over the airbase and attacked another group of Marines behind. So you had three different fighting positions being attacked and overran by the Japanese troops. But yes, the Marines did fend them off for a, a good large amount of time. Yeah, and that craft getting hit when it was beached as it got hit because uh, the early morning hours are still, you know, before morning nautical twilight, uh, that actually helped illuminate those Japanese you were talking about coming off uh, for the machine gunners to go, oh, my gosh, you know, here they come. Uh, if that if that ship hadn't been hit, they probably would have actually, you know, infiltrated even deeper before, the, you know, we opened fire on them, so... Because one of the things, thing. one of the things I learned from this book, the reason the lake, it was called Wake Island, is it sat so low at sea level. There's no mountainous obstructions, so when you're walking around Wake Island, all you hear is the loud crashing sound of the wake hitting every available rock, sand, surface in a 360 degree, 24 hours a day. And as we often know moon comes up tide gets a little crazy not only if if it wasn't for that illumination we would never heard the ships we would never heard the landing because the wake was so loud so that illumination of that burning of that vessel was tremendous in making us aware because we would have never heard the you know the the motors never heard you know the it's one thing if you're on a nice quiet island and you hear canteen smacking and thousand soldiers running up the beach but when it's just all you hear is Waves crashing all day long. That's the perfect disguise for a night assault in the dark. Absolutely. Later in the day, the Japanese conducted an air raid of 17 G3M2 nail bombers, in which between the defending F4F Wildcats and the anti-aircraft, they claimed two and shot they claimed two shooting them down and damaged eleven more, which is still pretty good. We're coming out on top so far. I mean, we've lost men, but if we're going numbers to numbers and equipment loss, we're coming out on top at this point where we've sank two boats, I think technically three, shot down a couple of bombers, and we just shot down two more. But this is a numbers game. I mean, we have 850 actively fighting guys. The rest of the civilians and construction workers are hiding in the, in the center of the island in the bush. And... Yes, 800 cats kind of sound like a lot, but not when they're broken up into seven different fighting positions. I mean, you know that better than anybody. It's just when you got a numbers game like that. And very little, I, I believe we didn't have enough. The Army personnel who came came with no weaponry. I think the Marines were the only ones there who had any sort of weaponry. So it was kind of like, remember an enemy at the gates and the Russians were invading? It was like, okay, I want to give you a rifle and give you ammo, and somebody else gets shot, you pick up the rifle and use your ammo. It was kind of like that way, when, it, especially with the civilians who were falling in. You got 400 unarmed civilians falling in. A lot of them were just trained on machine guns and being ammo carriers. Yeah, and, and the, the lack of camo between those positions is really what was crucial and uh the you know as the invasion um kind of got deeper and deeper i think it i want to say it was major devro that the the battalion commander the garrison commander actually kind of had the foresight and you correct me if i'm wrong but he pulls there were the two batteries that were engaged on the southern part of the island near where the invasion was happening and there was still a, a battalion or a battery 
to the north. Yeah, because it was kind of like a kind of like a, a almost a V. And so right. most of the battles happening on the, the two South Islands, and he had a battery up in the northern tip, um, kind of like a sideways V, or I guess your hand if you're doing like a monster to your kid or your dog. And so up on your index finger, he brought them down, and they had to circle around. Think of it, come down your your index finger, circle around the the arch of your thumb, then coming back. And so he brought the right. he brought the support down. Right, right. But yeah, to, to just to try to organize under fire all those different fighting positions with the five-inch guns and the machine gun positions and trying to watch the runway and the southern shores getting pummeled. Uh, it just it blows me away, and it, it truly was. One of the other books I've got on, on Wake, it, it says that it was a battle to make the gods weep, and it, it really, really was. And I feel for those guys. I, you know, I look forward to, to next week's episode, too, when we really get in the nuts and bolts of it. But you Well, know, one I, more thing this. I want to point out. We've often thought about the pre-invasion landings of Peleliu and Guadalcanal, particularly Peleliu and Tarawa, where our Navy just shelled the hell out of those islands for five or ten days. And we often thought, wonder what that was like. You know who could tell you what that was like? The Marines, the armies, and the civilians who sat on Wake Island for, what, 11 days? After that, after that failed invasion attempt, the Japanese said, hey, these guys are good at 3,000 yards. Uh, we lost 400 men on two vessels being sank, plus the men that died on the explosion during the landings. Let's just bomb them. They no longer have any air force. And so they literally just dropped bombs on them for 10 days straight on an island that I think at the highest was seven feet above sea level. <laughs> From the day they got there, there was no tree cover. There's no mountains. It's only cover you have is what they built and whatever they were able to dig. And they just had to sit there for 10 days and take it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, reading that book too, I remember having the kind of the feeling of you just really want to root. Of course, you want to root for the Americans, right? As American readers. And it's like this underdog story that you feel could turn in their favor, almost turns in their favor. Um, But then, you know, it doesn't. And, uh, the biggest thing I remember taking from reading Pacific Alamo was this was really the very beginning of what was going to be the next 45 months of, of America's finest hour. And they were around for the very, very beginning of it. They were in uniform or, you know, some of them, right. That we still had civilians, but you know, these were the guys that, if you think about those company commanders in the first few years of the war, those guys were in before the war, right? These yep. guys are, are, you know, West Point graduates of, you know, 38, 39, 40, things like that. So, you know, there was this, this transition, this shift of this, you know, very small, very limited military in 1939, 1940 to, and, and in 41 to a enormous army of, of citizen soldiers that we just, you know, thrust together and created all these divisions for the army and the Marine Corps and everything that we, you know, we built 150 some aircraft carriers in, in during the war. It's unbelievable what we did. And for the guys that survived the attack at wake that spent the entire war in a POW camp, could you imagine being in uniform, being at that moment in history and then just kind of getting plucked away 
And you have to read about all this in the papers in the fall and winter of 1945. Yeah, I was watching a, everything. I was watching a video. You're lucky if you got plucked away because a handful of them got stuck there to be slave labor to fortify the island for the Japs. Right. But they were saying, um, we know from the movie that once the news hit, before the war was even over, they already had Wake Island, a movie put out. But because the war isn't over and the POWs hadn't been released, no one knew where they were. No one knew how the battle wrapped up. In the movie, they didn't, you know, they didn't know about a second assault. In the movie, first assault, everybody was wiped out. That's how it ended. 1945, 1946, these guys are coming home after prisoner exchange and everybody thinks they're dead, especially the civilian you know, co- contractors. And then to find out, oh, wow, there's a movie about us. That had to be surreal in and of itself. Absolutely. And I've seen the movie and I thought it was really well done. And I'm going to watch it again this week uh, before our next episode because it's I, I love – I love the wartime films because, like you say, they don't even really know how it ended. It for in this particular case, they don't even really understand how important it is. I don't really think. I mean, maybe, but I just don't feel that Spencer Tracy knew how big of a deal the Doolittle Raid was really going to be. Sure. Right when they made Thirty Seconds Over Tokyo, it was a wartime film. Yes, it was. It was. It was a big deal. But did they really? Did they really know the history that they were making in film when they made Doolittle's Raiders or uh, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo or when they made Wake Island or when they made Guadalcanal Diary, Operation Burma, uh, Bataan? I mean, these were great wartime films that the balance of the fight was it was still hanging. And, and let's you know, be a little fair and a little honest to what they were designed for. Yes, they were there to tell a story, but more importantly, they were there to get enlistment numbers up. And so when you're sure. doing that, you know, you want to talk. <laughs> Wake about- Island is not going to get enlistment numbers. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it did boost morale because Absolutely. the fact that you had 400 Marines and 400 civilians literally take on the world's largest Navy and sink two vessels, one of them within two minutes with nothing more than some guns that were pulled off a battleship from 1892 and four airplanes. That was a huge, yes, it was a huge kick to the gut, but we often talk about how the flag raising at Iwo Jima was a, such a symbol to bolster morale, showing that we can do it. Wake Island was that early on, and that was, you know, right after Pearl Harbor. We just, that devastation, to hear that this little island that could before it fell, you know, they, once again, they thought everybody was wiped out after the war, but it was kind of one of those, they were wiped out, but they sure did put up one hell of a fight and showed the world what Americans can do, even with the bare metal. Because, once again, these cats were there with literally World War One equipment. They didn't have the P-41s. I think they're all wearing khaki uniforms. I mean, mm-hmm. they had the 1903 yeah. Springfields. They're still wearing the Kelly helmets. I mean, they had no, by their standards, modern-day equipment, exception of the Thompsons, but even those were from 1928 right and to do all that on literally a shoestring budget and absolutely uh, it put up the it kind of it reminded me of uh i don't know if i had it hanging up uh when you came to texas or not but outside of my office at the museum there for the living history unit i had a chalkboard and i had it written up there for so long 
And it's actually something I stole from my dad. He did the same thing at the police department he worked at. And it was a, a little saying that said, we've done so much for so long with so little, we can almost do anything with nothing. <laughs> and that's really, that's really what the boys at, at Wake did. I mean, they did so much. I mean, for, for that siege, that oh, more than a week, they did so much holding that back for so long with barely any equipment. You're right. It really would boost him around because look what we can do with almost nothing. Imagine if we're actually prepared and we invade. And by the way, we'll get into this next week. Just a little teaser. Things ended the way they did due to lack of communication and misunderstanding of a battlefield. Kind of. And I'll get to that next, uh, next week. Cause, uh, when you're a commander and you can't reach your your group, your troops, the thought of maybe some speaker cable that connects my telephones got cut, didn't even come to you. You just, oh, I can't talk to them. They must be gone. And so it was a lack of communication with his troops and um, poor oversight over what battlefield and what the actual truth was that led to at the time, rightfully so, decisions that were trying to save lives, but maybe if more data was available to the, the person in charge, things may have held out a little longer or uh, maybe could have turned around and got the Navy to turn the ships back around and come help them out. But we'll get more of that next week. Um, we kind of did an entire episode on what I'm reading, but Jeff, what you reading? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm still reading uh, Stephen Ambrose's Citizen Soldiers. It's so good. Uh, I'll probably have it done by next week. I'm kind of, I'm actually trying to slow down because I don't want this thing to end. But it is a pretty thick, healthy book. But it's Ambrose, right? It's yep. it's uh, following these, literally the Citizen Soldiers, the Citizen Army that we put together, and you're following them throughout the entire ETO from June 7th of 44 to May 7th of 45, and so you get a little bit of a taste of D-Day, but that's not what it's about. It's really um, the liberation of France all the way through uh, to victory in, in Europe. And I've learned, I'll be honest, I mean, I've learned so much from from this book um, on so many different levels of command. I've learned, I don't typically read anything from the German perspective, and Ambrose does a great job. I mean, you know, he, he interviewed thousands of yeah. veterans, right? I mean, he, he, he was... He he had so many resources available to him and so many talents available to him at, at probably the, the 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 best moment in history when these guys, you know, and you would think, oh, you probably would have wanted to interview them in the forties and fifties. No, these guys weren't talking about this in the forties and fifties, but in the nineties, in the nineties, that's when. And you, know, I know you remember, and I certainly remember when it was like the fiftieth anniversary of everything World War Two. It seemed like that these guys started opening up and talking about their experiences as they reached the age of about 70, 75. I think you've said yourself, they probably started understanding their own morality. Yeah. And they, and they had grandchildren on their lap at this time. And they're saying, you know, maybe I ought to write this story. Maybe I ought to, you know, write this down or, or show my kids the trunk in the attic with the silver star and, and tell them about my buddy, Joe, that I lost at battle of the bulge or, you know, things like that. And Ambrose compiled so much from both sides. You really learn a lot about the Americans. You learn a lot about the Germans. You learn about you learn a lot about war in general. He 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 compares so much 
to 80 years prior. He goes back to the Civil War so many times that you see these same patterns, and it's just it's, it's a wonderful book. I think we're lucky in a way that he wrote those books in the time in which he wrote them because there's an honesty to his journalism. There's an honesty to his writing because, once again, he gives the German veterans that he's interviewing the same respect you know, he's talking to them as people who were enlisted by their government to serve, to fight for their cause, and not talking down to them resentful as the enemy who killed so many Americans. And we see that so much nowadays where people don't want to hear from the side that they don't agree with, whereas I don't know if we would have got the same honesty from an author writing that book in 2023 as we did in the 90s because his ability to separate them from the tasks that they had performed and why they performed it and just talk to them as human beings who were involved in this horrible, horrible war and got their view of it without, we assume, without putting any sort of opinionated slant on their stories. And I think we're so lucky that he was he wrote those when he did and he was such an honest writer to present their side. Because in that book, as you're saying... It's almost like half a chapter. You're like you're reading American side, and then meanwhile on the ranch on the other side of the line, you know, looking down his gun sight is this German, and then they he does an entire half a chapter on their logistics, on their placement, on their troop movement, so that you get the whole battlefield view of these different combat engagements instead of just getting one side of good guy versus the the faceless bad guy. He's revealing that face to bring the human experience to the whole thing instead of just, you know, good versus evil or black versus white. Absolutely. No, you, you said it, you hit the nail on the head. He, he just does a wonderful job. So highly recommend that book. If you're a fan of the ETO, if you're not a fan of the ETO, I mean, it's, it's, it's a must read. I mean, it's, it's Stephen Ambrose. <laughs> it's, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> and we've talked about this a lot. I think, and, especially nowadays for the casual observers. I think if you want to get someone interested into this topic, you bring them into it with the firsthand accounts, let them gain the interest and then let them get, start digging into the logistical stuff, the dates, the numbers and all that. But I think a lot of people find that they get more interested in, at least I know I did to me, my interest in the whole topic, the fact that reading these books, watching shows and saying somebody actually lived through that and not only somebody but here's the names here's how old they were here's where they grew up here's the name of their brother here's the name of their sister and taking this old black and white footage that we'd seen growing up watching our cartoons and the the latest vhs box set of the midway war commercials would come on you see this grainy footage while you're waiting for your you know, cartoon or whatever show you're watching on Discovery Channel, these, and then bring in the names, the faces. And it's almost like that country song. See it in color, you know? When you're reading it, even though the photos are in black and white, if you're reading this in your mind, it's all in color. You're seeing it in color. You're seeing it for who these people were and what they went through and what the end result was and the impact that it had on the world. And the the insanity and the just unbelievable heroics of it all. I have to yeah. joke, you know, you got sixteen year old kids, seventeen, eighteen year olds landing on Normandy fighting for the world and nowadays you ask your sixteen year old to mow the grass and they oh, I guess. 
<laughs> so it's it's just always it's always weird to think that way. But um, yeah. But I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. We do want to remind you Christmas is coming up, so head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the merch link, and get you the M1 Garand uh, Ralphie T-shirt and many of our other wonderful shirts, and get your father a wonderful WTSP World War II coffee mug for Christmas so that he can uh, enjoy a nice warm cup of joe through the um, new year and uh, pick yourself up some uh, Warbird coffee too. That'll go a long way to soothe the soul. Jeff, you anything coming down the line? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, this Friday we've got an event out at the museum called Santa and a C-47. Uh, our C-47 Texas Zephyr is, uh, is finally here, and it's uh, you know still undergoing some restoration, but it, it sure looks nice in the hangar, and we're going to take advantage of that and um, bring in some Christmas music and some hot cider and hot chocolate and some Christmas cookies, and a few of us will be in uniform, and we're going to have Santa up there on a stage. There's actually uh, the C-47 is going to have the tail up on a on a hydraulic jack to sit level as if it would be in flight. Oh, cool. Yeah. Which will, it'll make for a great photo op. Uh, they'll bring that nose way down so we can get it closer to the nose art and put Santa there and some tr- uh, Christmas decorations and, and just, you know, something to bring your kids out to on a Friday night for a few hours. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to that. I don't know if anybody makes reproduction military era laundry bags, but that big, I got an original one. That big khaki brown laundry bag would be a great Santa Claus bag instead of the big red felt one. Just give them a stack of the the khaki ones to stack up. You know, honestly, the the one that I was issued is not much different. Yeah. The 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 color of the string is is different. Other than that, it's the same bag. I found I one from World War Two. I found one at an yeah. event somebody was selling, and it's a little dry rod. I started putting my stuff in, and it started getting a little hole in. But I'm just gonna. I found the best item for patching khaki stuff, like pup tents and that. You know, you get the holes in them if you're camping in them. Obviously, you don't want to buy them brand new, but head down to, like, uh, Goodwill and find an old pair of khaki dickies. The color's almost exactly, and it's rugged, and you just cut patches out and just sew them in. Good to go. Absolutely. But that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Please head over to uh, WTSP World War II. Check out all of our podcasts. Click on the YouTube channel. For myself, Jeff Copsetta, congratulations to our winner. I'll be reaching out to you through Patreon tomorrow to get your address, and we'll get that bad boy in the mail. Thanks to Henry Sledge for donating these two prints. We're going to do probably the next one either in January or February. We haven't decided yet, but for myself and Jeff Copsetta, we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 